Romans 9, 19, 29. Um, before we read this text, uh, I, I want to give you some, some kind of prophetic encouragement uh, from the Word. In, in Psalm 95, we hear this. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah and Massa, where you were quarreling and testing the Lord. The writer of Hebrews picks it up too. In Hebrews chapter 3, says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And, and I want to tell you that today. If you hear His voice today in the preached Word, don't harden your hearts. Scripture is just replete with examples of those who've hardened their hearts. In the previous verses, we'd looked at uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardening his heart, things being presented to him, even his own wise men, right? The pagan wise men go to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. We can't reproduce this with our magic arts. Everyone is telling him, this is God. Can't you see Egypt is destroyed? This is God. Let them go. And he stands as his example. As those who've heard, those who've seen, those who've experienced it, and said, no, I will not submit to the living God. I want you to have that in your mind as we read and study this text. Let me give you just a little bit of context. Romans chapter 9, uh, it is a beautiful, 9 through 11 is this just beautiful response of the heart of Paul towards his own people. The people he connected with the most. So, you know, if you're ever wanting to uh, read, a, uh, you want to read a book on what's it like to uh, fight cancer, it's nice if the person who wrote it fought cancer, right? Uh, if you want to talk about feminism, it's nice to talk about feminism with a woman, right? Uh, like when I'm sitting at the football game, we got our seats moved. Uh, and um, I appreciate it, Lynn. But you know what? The crowd behind us is not as good as the old crowd behind us. You know, the old crowd behind us, it was Bo and Todd, right? You could hear those two old guys, those old pirate codgers up there. And, and those guys know football. Like, it was amazing. We would sit there, and Tammy and I would get lessons on football, right? You'd hear Bo say, don't do that, coach. Don't do that. They're going to run this play. And then they'd run that play. I'm like, man, how does he know that? He's like, coach, don't you see that? They're lining up for this. They're going to do that. And they would do that. And I'm like, man, right now, the crew I sit with now, okay, I was sitting next to my neighbor, and he don't mind me saying this, and we were watching it, like, like all of us armchair quarterbacks do, like we were watching the game Friday, and uh, I think Grove's down there in the, in the red zone, and he goes, you know what they ought to do, they ought to run this play, I don't know why they don't run this play, they ought to run this play, this is the play they need to run. Well, then they ran that exact same play, and lost five yards. <laughs> And he looked at me, he goes, maybe that's why the headman ran that play. And I said, yeah, yeah, maybe we ought to just stay in our lane and cheer, right? <laughs> now, when Paul writes 9 to 11, he's writing to his very people. So each chapter starts with this impassioned plea. You are my people. My heart longs for you. I have great anguish for you, right? There is no way he would have that if they were not in great danger. Right? He wouldn't say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with grief and anger, but don't worry. You can chase your bloodline back, and so you're good. Right? That doesn't occur to him at all. And so he is writing a people 
that when the gospel came through the Jews, when the gospel came through Jesus and through him, they said it isn't fair. God's changed those rules. And so that's why these next three chapters have so many Old Testament references. Right? He is saying, this book that you grew up reading, these psalms that you grew up singing, they point to Jesus. This promise that I'm telling you, this gospel going out to the Gentiles, it was not plan B. It was from the very beginning. God was going to do this, and we are seeing it happen. And that's where he is in chapter 9. And he's answering the questions, and it's really great because he knows exactly how they think. Right? The gospel's presented to him in verses 1 to 13. We did that a few weeks ago. Um, he answers that question. What about God's promises to Israel? Didn't he say we'd be like the sand in the seashore and the stars? What, what about his promises? So he answers that question. And then 14 to 18, uh, how, how, how can God be just since he is the one who calls and chooses whom he chooses? That doesn't seem just. Why, why does he not save everyone? One of the key verses, really for this whole section, is verse 6, the end of verse 6, when he says, It's not as if the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is a huge point. That is, that is crucial to their understanding and is crucial to our understanding. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. But remember, he uses the illustration of Jacob and Esau, right? They were both uh, ch children uh, of, of Abraham. Uh, I, I'm sorry, children of uh, Isaac. Isaac and uh, Ishmael were both children of Abraham. And so he, he says, you know, it, it was never that way. It's not that I'm changing it. It's not that God's changing it. All throughout the Old Testament, you had the remnant that followed him and that were saved, and you had the others that didn't follow him, and they rested on whatever it was they rested on, but they were not saved. So we get now to the third question, and this one is probably really common, uh, especially among uh, believers when the doctrines of God's sovereignty and the Reformation are, are poured out. And this question is, well, um, why does God still blame us? And so that's what we're going to hit um, this morning. So we'll pick up at verse 19 and read through verse 29. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it's said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. 
though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Here's the line of questioning from the previous section. If salvation is entirely up to the will of God, which it is, if salvation is entirely up to the will of God, which it is, he says it twice in verse 15 and twice in verse 18. Right? Verse 15, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If salvation is entirely up to the will of God, which it is, then is it fair of God to hold us accountable to him when he makes the decisions? Uh, the answer, the response, I'm going to talk about it in three parts. I titled the sermon... Anthropology and Theology 101. Did you notice this morning that when we sang, we were singing theological songs? We were singing songs about the truth of who God is. Vitally important that we grasp that because the identity of a human being is tied up to God. We are defined through him and by him. That is who we are. You cannot dissect the two. The the anthropology has to be tied to the theology. What we believe concerning people and their makeup is tied to what we believe concerning God. In fact, what we believe concerning God is most of all importance to us. Uh, Most of the sins, the doubts... And the problems uh, in humanity come from an inadequate understanding of who God is, what he is like, what does he require, what has he done. Like I said with my illustration of the football game, you know, we tend to be like me and my buddy who don't know as much about football uh, making calls. They should do this, they should do that, or, or somehow thinking we can do a better job of officiating when I don't really know what that hand motion means, right? Uh, it's, It's the same. God who has created us to know him, and we are known through him, and we are defined by him. Um... He made us in his image, but we are not the exact representation of his being. Um... I want you to also recognize that this question, it, it, it is not coming from a, a humble person seeking knowledge, right? It is a person talking back, right? And so these questions are not coming from a person that says, if this is, is true, tell me what I must do or what I must believe. It is a person saying, I will not humble myself before my God, before the God, Right? I will not. I will find someone else to blame. Um, and so you really have three doors. Um, so I want to address guilt and shame. 
because that's what they're saying. How, how can he still hold us accountable if he is sovereign over all? How can he still hold us accountable? And, and, and so for a, for a human being, those may be the most powerful emotions that we have. I mean, you could, you could argue that, that love is powerful, but guilt, shame, so extremely difficult to shed for human beings. Shame especially wants to hide the recesses of our heart and mind. We think the only way to get rid of it is to deny its existence and to never, ever, ever let anyone know that it's there. And our gospel says, oh, oh, bring me your guilt and bring me your shame. There are three options. The first, when we feel that sense of guilt and shame, uh, which again, I, I'm saying I don't, I don't believe these people are thinking this. They're really those people who have decided in their heart, I'm not going to believe this gospel. And so I keep searching and searching for ways to undermine it. Why is it important that we know this? Because the same thing happens to us. Right? You, you, you share the gospel with a person and, and they have some uh, sinful identifying issues that they're not going to give up, what will they say? God made me like this. God made me like this. Andy Stanley has said, you know, he's changed some of his views on homosexuality, and he said uh, part of it has come because he has known these two gay men that have prayed for it to go away, and it hasn't gone away. So since it hasn't gone away, then it must be okay. It's that same argument. God made me this way. It's not my fault. Um, and so that's the, I'd say that's door number one. We shift whatever guilt and whatever's wrong, whatever's pointed out to us. And we say he made it that way. He won't fix me. He won't take away the desires. It's his fault. Uh, door number two is we balance kind of our guilt and shame by all manner of good works. So in the economy of guilt and shame, uh, I may have done X. I may have been responsible for X, but I've done Y. You know, I've, I've done all these things to, to cover it up or, or to make up for it, right? And, and that thinking, it's, you know what it's like? It's like the rom-com, right? It's like the rom-com. How many times in a rom-com does, does someone say, uh, will you please take me back? If you take me back, oh, I promise, sweetheart, I will spend the rest of my life proving to you how sorry I am and how wonderful you are. Now, what woman would not take that deal? Right? Will you sign here that that's what you're going to spend the rest of your life doing? What idiot man thinks he could do that? Spend the rest of his life? Wow! I don't think that sounds like a great relationship. But it is in that sense. Right? I, 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 I have this wrong, and so I'm going to do this. The beauty of the gospel, the invitation of the gospel, is we take it to Jesus. All right, so the sermon in the sentence this morning is Christians, we must take all of our guilt and our shame without qualification, without minimization or excuses to Jesus. Paul has anticipated their questions. In fact, he's probably uh, had conversations with these questions uh, in his missionary journeys. And so he answers it really with these three kind of three responses. Uh, the first he is, is to say, who, who, who is asking these questions? Uh, the second is, um, who's being asked? 
And the third, really, what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures teach? What do the prophets teach? And so um, the first is, who's asking the question? And so you have these really blunt verses, 20 and 21, right? Verse 19 sets it up. How can God find fault with us? And he answers in verse 20, uh, who are you, by the way? <laughs> who, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are you? Why, why do you think that you, you have a standing to question the most high, the most holy, the righteous God? Who, do, do you forget who you are? Those of you who know me know that my favorite illustration of this, of course, is in Braveheart, right? When Longshanks and Philip comes and talks to him. Right? Longshanks is talking about the invasion and, and Philip comes and offers him some advice and Longshanks doesn't even look at him. And he says, who is this who speaks to me though I need his advice? Oh, it's just so, so off-putting. Right? Who is this that can speak to a king and give him advice? We understand it. Right? But we are in a generation that expects that standing. Right? A lot of the young pastors that I helped train, the years in seminary, they, they came to these large churches and they were an assistant or an associate and they were doing this. And, and many of them really thought that they should have the, the reins of the church because they graduated from seminary. And they'd have this tension, like they're doing this and they really need to be doing this. And I would just say, uh, what were you hired for? Well, I was hired to do this. I'm like, then do that. <laughs> but they're doing this wrong and they're doing this wrong. I'm like that's okay. Give it a few years, right? That's the first question. Who is speaking in the presence of God? It's an anthropology question. When we teach our kids the children's catechism, listen to the first five questions of the children's catechism, right? This is why our kids are really good at sports, these five questions. Who made you? Kids, can you answer that one? Who made you? The answer is God. It's not a squirrel. Who made you? God. Question two. What else did God make? God made all things. Question three. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. I still remember four-year-old Luke saying, for his own glory. He couldn't get glory out there. But he knew it, right? The very first things we teach Christian children. Who made you? Why did he make you? For how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Question five. Why ought you to glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. Who are you to question God? Jesus picks up that theme for sure in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, by the way, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? There's always a danger to make too much of ourselves. And there's also a danger to make too little of ourselves. We are the highest of his creation. We are made in his image. We are given a soul that will never die. But we are created beings. Uh, second part of who's asking the question Still verse 20. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me this way? Um, you know, there are times I love our technology. And there are times that the problems that come with it uh, almost make it worth doing without. 
Will the molder say uh, to he who molded it, why have you made me this way? Isaiah says um, in 29, chapter 29, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. There's a term that's uh, just come out. Well, actually, in 2021, I can't remember the name of the author, who, who she is. Um, but she says, we are living in a society where humans are becoming meat Lego Gnostics. Meat Lego Gnostics. She has a, a, quite a following uh, with people who are uh, detransing. And um, I read on her website this, uh, this testimony from a person seeking to detransition. She writes, I feel like I've had my personality, my personhood, my connection to my body stolen from me over several years of intensive online grooming. Our enemy seeks to take what is so basic to humanity. And now through technology, the author says, we've become meat Lego Gnostics. We have separated our person from our body. And that's how the Gnostics were, the early Gnostics were like, man is spirit, um, the spirit lives forever, the body is gonna be destroyed and their body doesn't matter, uh, even to the extent that you could do whatever you wanted with your body. Um, they didn't have the technology to cut things off and add things and, 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 and do all of that, but it's not a new concept. Who are you? I'm a created being created in God's image. My Father who loves me and takes care of me. The third part of his question is, has the potter really, do they not have any right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another of dishonorable use? And this is that relationship question between creator and uh, creation. Does God not have the right to do what he wants with what he has made? You know, and even potter and clay breaks down because God made the clay, <laughs> right? There, there is no existence of anything outside of him. Nothing, nothing in the cosmos, in the universe. There is nothing outside of him. He has made it all. The fact that he would create in his image, the fact that he would call to himself those who have sinned against him should make us eternally grateful. And so it's interesting, this question um, of why God does what he does. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Job, Job is a righteous man, right? That's how the story starts. Job was such a righteous man that, that in fact, when the demons and Satan and the angels were presenting themselves before God, God said to Satan, have you seen him? There's none like him. A righteous man who fears God. And Satan says, he doesn't serve you for nothing. You take away his health, you take away his children, you take away his money, and he will curse you like any other man. And all those things happen to him. And the scriptures tell us, and yet Job did not sin in his heart. But Job does repent of one thing. He repents, and, and you read it in chapter 42. Job answered the Lord, and he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be 
thwarted. And then this is the word of God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job says, therefore I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. God says, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He was not repenting over the sins of greed or all the sins that his friends said, you must have done this, you must have done this, you must have done this. He was repenting of misjudging God's ways. Of thinking, I, I, God is not, this is not right, this is not fair to me. I am righteous. And then what happens? The glory of God unfolds. And, he, and he, is, he is overwhelmed. I'm a created being. He can do whatever he wills with me. And what happens? Job worships the Lord. Now, this doesn't give in to fatalism. You know, Jeremiah, he is the weeping prophet. He uh, calls them to repentance. Isaiah, he calls them to repentance. Um, and so that's really the first question, and you know me. We'll, we'll knock these other two out pretty quick. I already saw the nursery look over there, so. <laughs> I see those looks. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Uh, okay, who is being asked? Right? Then, then he says, who, 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 do you know who you are? And more importantly, do you know who God is? And so verses 23 to 24, he says, God is desiring to show his wrath. Make know his power. He has endured with patience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now it's interesting. He's got these two vessels. This picture of two different vessels. All right, but the wording is dissimilar. Right? Vessels prepared. It doesn't say vessels he prepared. It does say in regard to his children, those who I have prepared. So it's great. It's it's good reason we have all of that Old Testament because it is always consistent. Theology of the New Testament and the narrative of the Old Testament, there are no inconsistencies with it. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God responded to his hardness by hardening it even more. And so he is saying, uh, this is our God. This is what he does. Um, Verse 22, our God is patient. Right? As we see the horrific things going on in our world, our God is patient. He is enduring, and we are told never to ever assume his patience means he doesn't care or he will not judge. Secondly, God is preparing you, or you are preparing yourself. There are vessels prepared. It's on them. They've been building up in themselves the wrath of God, and there are vessels of mercy which he has prepared even us. He says this in Ephesians 2. He's talking to the church there. He goes, you, you were among the sons of disobedience. You once lived with them in the passions of your flesh. You carried out all the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. John Stott says it's because he is who he says he is that he does what he does. And although this doesn't solve the ultimate mystery of why he prepares some people in advance for glory and allows others to prepare themselves for destruction, yet both are revelations of God, of his patience and his wrath and judgment, and above all, his glory and mercy 
in salvation. Jesus picks this theme up in Matthew 13 with the wheat and the tares, right? The disciples come to him, the workers come to him and say, hey, someone's sown these tares in there. You know, we, we were supposed to weed it out. He says, no, you let them grow together. There's purpose in this for us. It is grand and it is glorious and it is hard at times to grasp. But for you, as you behold hardness of human hearts, you realize God is limiting His wrath even now. He is holding back. He is patient. But as you see this, take note, O Christian. You see those in the world that strive after things that will not satisfy and are let down and one from one thing to another. We are to continue to offer them the gospel. We are to continue to pray for them. But even the rebellious are left on planet Earth for our good. For us to observe, not in a, not in a self-righteous way. But really, God is saying, take note. Watch. Right? He says that to his people. Has any of their other gods ever done to them what I've done with you? No. Why would you take them into your home then? Calls us to do the same thing. Lastly, he verifies his answer by the prophets. So it is a Jew speaking to a Jew. It is a Pharisee speaking to Pharisees. Paul, who loves his people and longs to see them converted, says, this has been prophesied. It is not something new. And so he calls the prophet Hosea. Had these children. He had to name one my people, and I'm not your God, and you're not my people. And then Isaiah crying out about the, the remnant. It's been prophesied. They're seeing it. And therefore, they're without excuse. God is not to blame. And God is not unfair. Isaiah cries. Jeremiah weeps for them to return. And Paul says he has unceasing anguish and sorrow. What does that mean for us? Well, first of all, it's not too late. Our God is enduring with great patience, humanity. Right? So when we see things, we observe things, we hear things, and we wonder, why is God allowing this? He is bearing patiently. And those who are to be judged will be judged. It's not too late. He's calling his Jewish friends here. He's saying there was a remnant in Hosea. There was a remnant in Isaiah. God is making a new Israel, and it's going to include Jews, and it's going to include Gentiles. It's not too late. Turn and be saved. Christians, we take all of our guilt and all of our shame without qualification, without minimization or excuses. We take it to Jesus. We do not say, you've made me this way. It's your fault. We don't do it. Here's the beauty. God has made us we are fallen. I was talking to somebody just the other day and trying to help them deal with a problem with a kid. Like, did we do this right? Did we deal with this right? I said, uh, yeah, I think so, but here's the good news. What's that? You get to do it again. <laughs> it's like, what? I'm like, oh, we don't have some plan that's going to make your kid perfect because, you know, uh, it, it, you're going to get a chance to deal with this. Again, brothers and sisters, our guilt and our shame, the last thing our Savior wants it to do is to drive us further from Him. Right? In a, in a Christian, if there are thoughts of guilt, if there are thoughts of shame, we say, thank you, Holy Spirit. 
I will now repent of these things. And I'll believe that the blood of Christ has removed its stain and has cleansed me. Remember always who you are. How you define yourself. And you'll find this throughout humanity when you ask somebody who they are. Uh, they will attach themselves to several things, won't they? For the Christian, the first and highest attachment has to be, I am Mark Kuyper, the son of God saved by grace. That's who I am. Oh, yeah, I'm a father. Oh, yeah, I happen to be a grandfather, too. Oh, yeah, I like doing this. I like fishing. I like... But at my core of my being, oh, human, who are you? I'm a child of the king created in his image. Loved from before I was born. Before the earth was put together, the scriptures say, he knew me. That's who I am. Well, you do this and you do this and you struggle with this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't change who I am. And who I am becoming is promised to me by the very God who put his son in my place to remove the guilt and to remove the shame. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what glorious news. I don't know why we sometimes try to figure out some other way to make ourselves righteous. Someone else to blame or some good thing that we've done. When you open wide your arms and say, come to me, I have the very clothes of Jesus and I will wrap you in him. I will remove the guilt and the shame. The prophets tell us that, that you will even, Father, take care of, of all the years that the locusts have stolen from us. That you will renew all of that. And it is not upon us to figure it out and do it right. It is for us to do like Job, to close our mouths, repent, and receive from you. Father, will you set apart this bread and this cup? Uh, Father, just this ordinary bread, this ordinary wine and grape juice, that as we take and as we eat and as we drink, that all guilt and shame would be quenched by the blood and the body of our Savior. That before the one and only being in all of creation in the universe that knows us, we stand righteous in your sight. Our Father loves us, our Father has saved us, and our Father will glorify us. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for these elements. Thank you for your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.